name is Clancy Emerson. I'm an alcoholic. Seems like a shame to ruin a wonderful evening like this with an AA talk. But I'm uh, glad to be here. I really enjoyed, I didn't enjoy everything about the meeting, but I enjoyed Charlotte's talk very much. I am also married to an Al-Anon named Charlotte. And she, uh, she isn't as soft-spoken as this Charlotte. <laughs> and I can't say too much about it. I wouldn't tell you exactly what, what hell it's been, except my daughter's in the room and she'll snitch. I'm glad to be here. I've uh, had a very nice trip. I have a daughter and son-in-law and three grandchildren who live here in Vancouver. And so I had a chance to uh, sleep in one of the little kiddies' beds last night. And, uh, once I got my legs massaged this morning, I was able to straighten out. It wasn't too bad. We, uh, I'm just fooling. I, I don't want to hear about this later tonight. I'm very glad to be here tonight. I had a nice tour of Port Vancouver and got a chance to walk from the visitor center down to the fort in the rain. And that's, that's kind of nice when you live in California and don't have much rain. But all in all, it's been a very pleasant day. I got a chance to, uh, my grandchildren gave me a special treat today that's kind of added a dimension to my life. I had dinner at Burgerville. <laughs> I felt like coming up and getting a newcomer chip tonight in the 12 Promises, just... <laughs> but enough of that. We are here tonight uh, because we all share certain things, uh, either a problem with alcohol or a problem with people who drink alcohol. And uh, I look over my life, I had a very... I had a, a lot of experiences in my life, as most of us have. <laughs> The probably the primary problem I've always felt in my life, and I'm sure some of you felt this, I always felt for years and years, and still do intermittently, because I'll tell you, when you come to AA, that doesn't change things. That's just, you try to lessen them up a little bit. But most of my life, I've had the feeling there was something terribly different about my emotions, something different about my feelings, something different about how I react to things. Over the years, I always had the feeling, if I've ever been given any gift at all, it's a gift of self-analysis. And I didn't want to waste that gift. So. But how do you really feel? You think you're feeling good? You're kidding yourself. And nearly all of my life, I've had a lot of self-examination. For example, certain things I found over the years that I didn't really say this is one and this is two and this is three, but things that I felt little by little, and I can see in retrospect what they were. Nearly all of my life, for example, I've always felt that I, somehow or other, I'm too vulnerable to things. I'm too sensitive to things. I feel things too intensely. Now, I don't, I never uh, talk about it much. I never talked about it much, but I always seem to be as though there are other people get to hear the same things and they say, well, that's that. But I, I grind and think of it and feel. And I'm always so sensitive to people's looks and glances. 
<laughs> and I, uh, another thing that does for you, it makes you, it gives you, makes you very susceptible to rejection. I have always been able to see rejection where no one else has been able to see it. They're not rejecting you. Bullshit, they're not. I'll kill them, you know. Sometimes when I'm not feeling good, a glance can ruin a day. Just a, a, a tone of voice can just destroy a whole morning, you know. And on and on. I've always had the feeling, why do I have these, why am I so sensitive to things? Why do I have antenna out just to get dinged somewhere? You know. Uh, the, uh, I remember joking in a bar once with a guy. I thought I was joking. I guess it must be true. I said, see, like, when I came off the assembly line, there must be some last operation where they put some insulation on you to protect you against all the slings and arrows. And I must have just got there and somebody said, hey, God. I said, yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, screw him. He's Norwegian. And the, another thing I've noticed in my life that I have seemed to have a lot of, most of my life, once in a while now, but not much, but most of my life, I've been a great, I've been prey to waves of anxiety. Just anxiety. Now, I know everybody has anxiety. I studied psychology and so on. I know everybody has anxiety. But they have anxiety about something they're anxious about. I seem to have waves of anxiety when I can't find out anything wrong enough to justify that much anxiety. It's just, I discovered an AA is called a sense of impending doom. And the reason you have a sense of impending doom is because there's doom impending, I guess. <laughs> but having that feeling, and there's, it's something you see a lot in newcomers, you know, you say, how are you feeling? Anything wrong? No, no. You know. <coughs> and they shake hands. The, um, that's one of the ways you know you've turned the corners when you don't instinctively wipe off your palm to shake hands. Every day. <laughs> but it always, you know, these ways, it was almost a blessing when something bad happened. So you, oh, I guess I saw that coming. It's just, you feel goofy is what you feel. I've always been, uh, one of the things that's always bothered me, not, I didn't put words to it, but I can see it in retrospect, much of my life, I've always been prey to some kind of loneliness. Now, I know everybody gets lonely, but people get lonely when they're alone. I have a tendency to get lonely in the midst of crowds of people. Where I just feel shut off. Just feel shut off. Like sitting in the middle of that crowd right back there just feeling, what the hell am I doing here? I'm just detached. And when that happens to me, I get depressed and I withdraw, which makes me more lonely, which makes me withdraw more, which makes me more lonely. And the day has come probably hundred, over a hundred times in my life when cold, sober, and without any drinks in me at all, I just can't get up in the morning. Just can't face it. Just hold so Call in and tell them I got the flu. I'm just depressed. I just... Hasn't happened for a while, but it happened before that a lot. And it's hard to justify what the hell's wrong to your loved ones, because you don't have, what's wrong? I'm lonely. 
You're going to stay that way, too, Slim. Come on. It's almost, uh, there's nothing you can do. You can't take the covers down to argue. The best argument I've ever been able to find is you hold the covers with this hand, try to find the top of the covers with this hand, and... Now that's... <coughs> I'm glad you brought up an empty glass, Charlie. I can, I can hear the Columbia River. You know what Mr. Sweet Grateful John just said to me? Our other speakers knew how to pour. <laughs> now I know that other people get... Other people aren't like that. I remember sitting in an advertising agency in Dallas 30-some years ago. I was supposed to be a big hotshot, and I was. And listening to my secretary outside of my door, sitting in the hall, talking to her friend down the hall and saying something like, I'm so lonely last night, but I called up Mary Jo. We went to the show and had a wonderful time. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I really didn't say much usually, but I remember looking out the door and thinking, I wish I were simple like you, you bitch. I, uh, I've had a lot of feelings with insecurities in my life that seem to come out of nowhere. Other people seem to be secure, and I'm not sometimes. And I feel feelings of I'm not sure where I'm going. Other people seem to have goals, and I just I'm always in the halt. You know, I heard some guy say one time in an A meeting. Remember this, when one door opens, or when one door closes, another door opens. And it's very nice if you have to be where the door is opening, but you <laughs> Bang, open, bang, bang, you know. I seem to spend my life in the hall, you know. And I've had these feelings and a lot of other feelings. They've always... They don't all come at once. They come like a bubbling pot, you know. There's never any rest. And I've always been troubled by them since I was a kid. And I've hated them. And I've always known that if I could understand the nature of what makes these damn kind of feelings, I could probably get straightened out and be something. So when I was a young man, over, God, 35, 6, 7, 8 years ago, I was, I'm trying, well, I'm not... That's when I started in psychoanalysis. <laughs> now they say, nay, you shouldn't go to psychoanalysis, but I loved it. Cause in those, see, today, psychoanalysis is not very good because it's so common. So many little people have been in it. <laughs> but in my day, just the sensitive and intelligent people went. <laughs> and I made breakthroughs that would send shivers down your spine. I, uh, 
I discovered, for example, that I had been religiously repressed as a child. Now, I had never known that. And when I found it out, I was really pissed. I just... <laughs> I was great. It always seemed to me the family was a regular... We went to church, and Easter was a big thing. Christmas, we went to church every Sunday. I went to Sunday school, and I learned the catechism in Norwegian and all sorts of things. And when I got older, and I discovered it was a repressive, cruel church for something called the Norwegian Lutheran Church. It's not very well known in most parts of the country. You know, when you go to AA and you hear about strong churches, you always immediately think of Catholic. Because AA, about half the membership of AA is Catholic. <laughs> and they all get up and whine about the kiss. Me and the nuns hit my fingers on the ruler. <laughs> In our group, we have five nuns. When they speak, they say, when I was little, a nun hit my fingers. I sponsor, I got a new guy, I'm working with a priest. I'm almost afraid to listen to his fifth step. You get the feeling that Catholics are a strict church. In Eau Claire, Wisconsin, if you were a Norwegian Lutheran and you couldn't make it and you had to find an easier, softer way, you became a Catholic. That was for quitters who just had to go wild and play bingo. And There's an old saying about Norwegian Lutherans. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds true. They say that Norwegian Lutherans, even if they're married for 30 years, would never make love standing up. Just in the fear that some passerby would think they were dancing. You know, it's a, it's a tough trick. And I discovered in psychology that I had been repressed as a child. I discovered that my parents had given me a deep sense of rejection. I, I wouldn't think so now, but it seems right then. I discovered all sorts of things. I discovered how I'd been psychologically scarred. I used to go to that place and have a martini and think, it's just, it's amazing I'm doing as well as I'm doing. It's just, <laughs> if I knew then what I knew now, I would have formed, I was telling you about dinner tonight, I would have formed adult children of Norwegian Lutherans. <laughs> I, could have, I could have kept unhappy on that for 30 years. The, uh, I'm not judging, I'm just reporting. <laughs> the, uh, I did a lot of things, but I, I discovered a lot of things in psychoanalysis, reasons for it that seemed to explain why I had these unnatural feelings. And some years after that, when things were really bad again, I got into metaphysics. Now, that's another thing that's been ruined by pop literature. In my day, there were very few people who were capable of seeking the infinite self in the universal understanding and modality. I was about half crazy by this time, so I really had a head start into it. I just... I don't like to gloat. It's bad enough to have people come here from sunny climates without having them gloat. But at one time, to the best of my knowledge, I was one of six people in the state of Texas who knew truth. And that's a very heavy load to carry down there. And in their envy and jealousy, they put me in the state insane asylum. Not for drinking, either. I also, in my life, have read books. I read Nietzsche. I don't know if any of you read Nietzsche. He's a great one to... If you've been raised in a bad, strong religion, and you are a sinner, 
there's something that there's some discord in your life because you know God's going to get you no matter how old you get the time's going to come uh -huh. there he is now <laughs> you know and Nietzsche was an old German philosopher he among other things one of his characters says in one of his treatises he said uh, God is dead why are you concerned about God certainly he said the orbs whirling but look at the anarchy about you. There's no God. God is dead. Put aside your fear and despair. I remember reading that and thinking, oh, I hope that's right. Because if it isn't, I'm screwed. You know. <laughs> I remember telling somebody one time, God, when you've broken, in the Norwegian Lutheran Church, if you break three or four commandments, you're damned. And as far as I know, I've broken all ten. And there's not much chance. And after I was sober a while, I begin to remember, I haven't broken all Ten Commandments. It's like World War II. You need a little beachhead to get back in. I thought, I haven't broken all Ten Commandments. I have never coveted my neighbor's manservant. <laughs> it isn't a hell of a lot, but it's a start. You know, you just... <laughs> but I... Uh... This, the thing about Nietzsche, in fact, that is such a well-known quotation they have it on the wall of a theological seminary in Chicago and it says God is dead signed Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche 1884 and beneath it it says Nietzsche is dead signed God 1904 <laughs> you never want to read the second half of things in theological seminaries they always turn out bad but I read a lot of things. I'll tell you another. I'm sure some of you are depressives. I got to be a terrible depressive. Let me recommend a book. It's called The Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler. He was a 19th century German philosopher, and he proved that everything you believe is false. <laughs> People are false. Social institutions are phony. There's no such thing as decency. Everybody's corrupt and rotten. And if you're terribly depressive and you read that, that cheers you up. I don't know. You know. Well, I spent a great many years of my life, and I'm sure you have too, and I'm sure some of you are in the middle of it, in that quest for why. Why do I feel this way? Why am I like this? Why am I not like them? What is different about me? Why? And I want to tell you something. I think, as one who spent many, many years at this, I can tell you some good news and bad news. That there are two or three therapies where you literally can find out why you feel this way. The bad news is, it doesn't help. <laughs> you wind up feeling crappy and knowing why. Yeah. Intense self-examination, except in the fourth step, has the same effect on me as something that happened to me many years later in Los Angeles. Intense self-examination is very similar to peeing your pants on a street corner. It serves no lasting purpose, but it makes you feel warm while you do it. Until the next cold wind blows. 
I've always been looking for something to ease off these feelings, to empty, to fill these holes I've felt in my emotions all my life. And the one thing that helped most, I paid very little attention to, because I took that for granted. I was after I was sober at AA for a while that I really had to go back and look at myself and think my life changed when I was 15 years old on the deck of a ship in Pearl Harbor early in the Second World War and some men gave me a whiskey bottle to drink out of for the, I don't know how many time I drank out of it before I was threw up, but this time it stayed down and it made me feel terrible for a minute and then something changed and I felt good. And I took that for granted. I had no idea then, or for many, many years later, till I died once, was brought back to life, and almost died again, that I have a, that my body has an almost immediate, unnatural reaction to alcohol. I didn't know it was unnatural. I never knew anybody who knew it was unnatural. And that is, the unnatural reaction to alcohol is what makes an alcoholic. That, is, that must be there without that. Let me put it this way. If you, have a, if you do not get an unnatural reaction to alcohol, you are not an alcoholic, no matter what else you got wrong with you. If you get an unnatural reaction to alcohol, you're an alcoholic, no matter how good everything else looks. But hardly anyone knows this, and we have no way to compare it, and there's no way to measure it, and so every one of us have to f struggle through to find out eventually, if we can before we die, that that was an unnatural reaction. Because you don't know it's an unnatural reaction. But it makes you feel better. It makes you feel better than it should. That's all. And I started drinking then. I'd become a terrible drinker. Later on in the war, I went in the Navy. I came home and took some tests. So I didn't have to go. I'm still a junior in high school. But I took some tests in the Navy so I could go to college and got married in college. and. Uh, had a couple of kids and went out in the world, became a sports writer, and I got advertising work finally, and little by little. In all these years, I searched for intellectual truth and resolution of emotional conflict, but the one thing that kept me going better than anything was a few drinks. I look over my life now, and I can say this with equanimity. A few drinks will make you feel better than a year of psychoanalysis. A few drinks will make you feel better than an understanding of man's role in the universe. <laughs> a few drinks just makes it better. A few drinks fills my holes. And it makes me feel the way men look, which is all I've ever wanted. And I didn't know until for years later that men don't feel as well as they look. So I, I was feeling better than they were, but I didn't know that. And with a natural insecurity or whatever it is, who knows, that comes with it, I can look over my life now and see a trait that made it impossible for me to ever continue to be comfortable anywhere. And it's this, and I'm sure some of you will have it if you think about it. When you feel less than or different or put down upon, there's a certain trait that falls in. And I didn't even recognize this until it was almost all over. But it turns out I have to be treated special in order to feel average. When I'm treated average, I feel rejected. When I come around the corner, I say, Hi, Clance! Not, oh, hi, Clance. <laughs> Move on to the next bar. Turns out that 
when they're treating you special, you're, you're kind of a novelty. When they treat you normal, you've accept, they've accepted you. But it doesn't seem that way. It seems other, they don't like me anymore. Get out of here. You're on, and on and on. I've always had to have a little more than there was. And I couldn't, you can't get it from people. But I discovered a few drinks makes it wonderful. When my holes get full, that's the way it seems to me. Other people have been all along, and I'm just catching up. And I get along, and I can make small talk, and I'm pleasant, and I'm fun. I'm a better father to my children. A few years ago, maybe 10, 12, I don't know, when the ACA thing was just starting in, a Nightline, they had a uh, program, one of the first programs ever done on adult children of alcoholics. And they sent out a camera crew to our house at Christmas time for my oldest daughter. She sat there with, my, uh, with me. They interviewed us. We didn't know what the hell was going on. Talked about her experience as a little girl with the father, an alcoholic father, and so on. So it's supposed to show the next Monday. And we all waited with... And, to, and this rotten... I rarely am unforgiving, but this Gaddafi <laughs> in Libya did something so terrible that they preempted the program with a special news bulletin. I've never forgiven that son of a bitch yet. <laughs> I... Don't misunderstand me. I didn't care for me. It was my daughter. I... <laughs> but anyway, so it never came on. Three, four months later, I was in Madison, Wisconsin. My wife called me. She says, they're going to have that program on tonight. They're going to have that program on. You and Mary. I said, oh. I forced myself to sit up and watch it. And sure enough, they had a whole bunch of children, one after another, grown-up children, whining up. Uh, my father drank and hit his and these parents go this is all my fault they would have been president if I hadn't had that beer god damn it you know. well, they had me on there and they got all done and my daughter never got on television and I was shocked and I called her up in Albuquerque where she at the university teaching and I said Mary you saw the program? Mother called you? She said, yes. I said, they didn't even put you on. She said, I'm not surprised. I said, you're not surprised? Why not? She said, I didn't say what they wanted me to say. What I said was, I thought you were a lot of fun when you drank. It's when you were sober it was so hideous. <laughs> but uh, when, I, when my holes are full... I don't get rejected. I reject. It doesn't sound like much, but what a world of difference. Some of you guys, I'm sure, have had the experience in your younger days of sitting in a bar late at night and watching the miracle of alcohol take place. Just watch some old pig get beautiful by one o'clock. You might sidle over to her and say, imply there will be delights beyond her comprehension. And she'd like to join you in the old Chevrolet at the curb. Now, if she would say, now, when my holes are full, I don't feel rejected. I feel sorry for her. You know? Too bad, bitch. Don't come begging tomorrow. If that would happen to me sober... I just go hang myself. <laughs> you know. 
That's why I drink. I'm not a drinker. I'm a feeler, and drinking makes it better. And the only problem I've ever had with alcohol is that sometimes I've accidentally overfilled my holes. <laughs> and I get run into a little bad luck. And I've always been a little flamboyant when I drink too much. When I'm sober, I'm repressed. And when I drink too much, ah! I become terminally cute. And so I was sent to my first AA meeting in 1949. That's a long time ago. I was 22, which doesn't seem so terribly young now, but then I was the youngest, but I made me 15 years in the whole Midwest. Was anybody in AA in their 20s, anywhere, anywhere in the world. And it was, a, you know, it didn't impress me much seeing old people in their 40s and 50s. Of, uh, you thought you were in God's waiting room, you know, just... Next. And these, these guys would say, it seemed to me they were saying things like, I drank a great deal of whiskey, and I came to this wonderful program, and I've just never felt so wonderful. <laughs> you want to say, why don't you tell your face? You know. But I didn't last long because there was one terrible dichotomy between them and me. That was this. Their problem was alcohol. And I thought maybe my problem was alcohol. But as soon as I stayed sober a while, I realized alcohol was not my problem. My problems were the things I drank for. Drinking makes me whole. When I not drink, I'm empty. So I went to psychoanalysis and metaphysics and read books to find out why. But they never refilled me up. Alcohol filled the holes. And so I went to psychoanalysis. Then I went back to AA because sometimes I drank too much. And at that time, there were, you know, people didn't know much about AA, and you could hustle them a little bit. And then employers would say, well, you're drinking too much, or you're, you're so erratic. And I'd say, I, I think I've got a drinking problem, Mr. Collins. I, I'm going to go to A&A. And nobody knew what it was. They said, good, you go that. And, and you could come home and say to your wife, well, Charlotte, Charlotte. I'm going back to A&A. <laughs> Wonderful. They, they want me to taper off. <laughs> and there was no Al-Anon then to screw it up for everybody. <laughs> Since Al-Anon came around, there's never been a moment's rest for anybody, anywhere. <laughs> Oh, yeah, don't give me that. We get the same stuff you do. <laughs> I release you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> but in those days, it was easier. But I, but I went to court sometimes. I got in fights. I got into jail. I did a lot of things. But I was always... And I had pretty good jobs, too. But I'd eventually... In every town, I'd eventually... It would get intolerable. I'd have to leave. And, and pretty soon, my family would join me. And we'd have another child. And just... On and on and on. But the one thing I realized, I wish my problem were alcohol. I wish it were that simple. I wish I could be one of these people who stop drinking and feel better. But there's something different about me. And I can't feel good for a while, but pretty soon it grabs you again. There's got to be some place, somewhere. I, uh, I had no idea that I was following the most common pattern. You know, 
in the years since I've been sober, I've read a lot of literature about alcoholism, written by authorities in the field. 25 years ago, I was director of a, I was promotion director for a big television station in Hollywood after I was sober. We had a representative come down from Schick Shadell on our station and explain to us how alcoholics could return to normal drinking with the new treatment they had found. And uh, I was thrilled to hear that. My tongue darted. I hung on for a while, and the same guy was put in a locked ward in his own hospital, so I guess it didn't work. Now you, now you can be healed in seven days. That isn't bad either, I'll tell you. But there's always been theories on alcoholism, treatments, knowledges. It's an amazing thing that this book, written by a guy three years sober who didn't know enough to write it, is still the most definitive work on alcoholism in the world, which leads you to believe this book truly is divinely inspired. I have... I'm not one who easily says divinely inspired because I, there's a lot of people today who see miracles everywhere. I don't see them. You know, they say, I, I saw a miracle this morning. I, I got up and the sun came up and I, I said, it's a miracle. <laughs> you know, get up tomorrow, you'll see another one, goof. You know, miracles have to be something for which there's no actual explanation. There's no explanation for that book, I'll tell you. Because this guy wrote a book, he had no background, no knowledge. He was surrounded by people failing. And it saved more lives than all other treatises on alcoholism for, totaled in the last 5,000 years. But one of the little things he writes in there, something, I read this 20 times, I guess. And when I was sober a while, I began to see it again. I said, my God, that's my story. I never saw it before. What seemed to me now when I think about it, what do we all have in common here? What makes it, what do all alcoholics have in common? We all lose our families. Some wish they could. <laughs> Some don't have a family. Have we lost our jobs? Become broke on schedule? Not at all. I sponsor a guy the last year he was drinking. He made $250,000. Is it that you can't hold a job? I sponsor a guy that put the American flag on the moon. He held a job. I sponsor, you know, I've seen a lot of people. What is it we all have in common? Well, there's a couple of things, I suppose. An unnatural reaction to alcohol is one. But the other one is this. There has to be somewhere in our lives where each of us, I believe, have done something without either being aware of it or we've done it knowingly or unknowingly, but we've had to do it. We have had to somehow, in the face of opposing evidence, accept an obsession that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking. And it says in the book, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. And why do people have to accept that obsession? Because they have discovered that life in sobriety becomes unbearable. I've got to believe drinking can be controlled. Then it goes on to say, we all seem to have brief recoveries followed by still worse relapse. Till you get to what point? Till you lose your family? Lose your job? Something more deep than that. Till you reach another moment of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I used to think that's how you got when you got drunk. But it isn't. That's how you get when you're sober coming off a of drunk pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. 
We talk a lot about drunken suicides, people being drunk committing suicides. Let me tell you a little funny statistic. Most alcoholic suicides never become even close to death, and many of them that do are considered to be accidents. The guy passed out before he could stop the action. When successful alcoholic suicides take place, usually is within a short time after again becoming sober. There's no long notes, no long farewells, just pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Boom. Or however you do it. But the, if you survive that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, your body builds scabs on your mind and on your body, and pretty soon, when it becomes untenable, you can believe that you can control and enjoy it this time. In fact, it goes all the things in there, it says, changing from one brand to another, reading spiritual literature, taking exercises, taking a trip, not taking a trip, all the things they talk about for pages. Remember when I was sober while reading that, thinking, I have tried every one of those things except one. I have never tried not taking a trip. Because <laughs> it's been my experience, when the heat is on, move it out. <laughs> only, only cowards stay and face the consequences of their actions. But I did all these things, and I tried to control my drinking, and the years went, and I held good jobs and bad jobs. A lot of my drinking got bad sometimes. I went on the wagon in Texas. I went on the wagon so long that one day I couldn't stand it. And my wife and children were in church. And I was directing a grand opera at the University of Texas. I was about to lose. That was my night job, working in an advertising agency in the daytime and writing a sports column. I had diversity of interests. And it was so bad and I couldn't drink and I couldn't stand it. And so they went to church and I took my car and put it in the garage and hooked up a hose and turned the motor and went to sleep and died. I couldn't stand it. I didn't know what the hell was wrong. And uh, somebody found me in there, dead, and took me out and beat my chest and breathed my mouth. And they rushed me to the hospital and examined me and determined I was, and I hadn't had a drink for a while, they determined I was a badly split schizoid personality and committed me for an indefinite period up to the rest of my life in the Texas State Insane Asylum at Big Spring, Texas. Now I'll tell you, when you're desperately trying to hold it together, and you've got a bunch of kids that you love, and you're trying to make something of yourself, and you discover that you've been committed maybe for the rest of your life in the Texas State Insane Asylum, you have a feeling this is not going to look good on the old resume. You know, there's, there's a little bit of, leave a little hole there perhaps. But I got out of there because I, I was there for a while. I escaped once. They brought me back. They gave me electric shock treatments for two months. I didn't. But then they put in an alcoholic ward. And I could beat that because I'd been in out of AA for seven years by this time. I knew how to play their sick little game. Oh, tell us about the steps, Mr. Ross. Tell us how to rule. Get the garbage out. Live in a new path of serenity and freedom. Tell us about God, Mr. Ross. That's wonderful, Clancy. You silly old son of a bitch. Tell us some you know, and I got out of that nut house the next year. And I never had another drink until I ran out of Thorazine. <laughs> In fact, I had forgotten this, but my daughter will remember this. My daughter who was here tonight, when she was a little girl, my wife used to give me big, have to give me big orange Thorazines on my plate every meal. And I'd come shuffling in to sit down. <laughs> and she and her sisters were watching Daddy take his candy and one night she danced out to the table a little early and got my Thorazine. And she slept for three days. Just 
Her mother thought that... Now, look what you've done. Oh. <laughs> Me? And, uh... Wound up's good jobs. And one day, uh... Always exploded again. One day I came home from losing my job at a big advertising agency and where some other guys and I had been writing these old L.C. Delmar ads for the board. I was always talented. I just couldn't hold a job. And my wife had finally taken the children and left. Left Dallas. Didn't know where she went from where we went. A couple weeks later I woke up and I was on the floor of the Phoenix, Arizona drunk tank. The guy just got done kicking my front teeth out. He said, you vomited on my bunk, you drunken son of a bitch. I was so sick. I lay there, hot, sick, and it was one of the few mornings I was glad I'd been in psychoanalysis. Because once you've been in psychoanalysis, you have insights that most people don't have. And that <laughs> that morning I was so sick, I couldn't move my head, but I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. <laughs> I remember thinking, this son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> and uh, a month or so after that, I found myself being thrown out of a Skid Row mission in Los Angeles. Now, how can you in two or three months go from a big job in Dallas to a Skid Row mission? I'll tell you how. Have everybody burned off at once. Have no money, lose your clothes, and everybody burn off so no one in the, that you know will accept a collect phone call from you. There's nobody who knows. I don't want to hear about it. Or if you can make the call, I say, no, that's the same promise you gave me last time. And you're screwed. And I, when this guy threw me out, I tried to explain to him, I'm not a bum. I'm not a bum. I have any front teeth. But it's hard to really communicate it, but... <laughs> I tried to tell him, you know, I, two years ago, I was directing the Grand Opera at the University of Texas. Ads that I have written are running this month in Life magazine and Collier's and Saturday Evening Post. I've had my picture in the New York Times for achievement. How many people do you know have had their picture in the New York Times for achievement? But it's hard to explain these things in midair. You know, just... <laughs> yeah, a... And I stood outside of a Skid Row mission. I'll tell you, if, my, if a man came up and said, your life depends on a correct answer, pal, put on a lie detector, are you an alcoholic? I'd have to say, no, I'm not. I wish to God I was. I wish to God I didn't. There's something inside of me, devils or what the hell it is, but it isn't. It was raining, and I walked 71 blocks out to an AA club that had asked me to leave a week before because I was hustling. And I hung around there, and I hung around there, and I slept in some, a car in the back of the parking lot, an abandoned car. And I hung around there for months, just dying. And then, as they do then as they do now, they say, Get a sponsor, get a sponsor. So I got a sponsor. There was an actor who used to come in there, and he, he always played kindly roles on television, radio, or uh, movies. So I used to be my sponsor, and it turned out those were just roles he was playing. He was a cruel, dictatorial person who didn't... He intimidated me terribly. I just hated him for that. He, he'd say, we're going to work the steps. I'm not going to work the goddamn steps. I know I'm... So we never worked any steps. That was one thing that helped. <laughs> but he'd make me do things and humiliate me and hurt me. And this went on for weeks and months, you know, I just... I was always in meetings, and so was he, and there's there no release from this man. I mean, he'd say things at meetings that just humiliate me. He'd say, go over and apologize to that woman. You call her a bitch. <laughs> she is a bitch. <laughs> Why do you think she's a bitch? Well, she told her newcomer not to go to bed with me. 
Well, she's right. Go and apologize. And I learned in my first year that something that some of you new people may want to know. You never have to believe in what you're doing here. You just have to do it. Sorry. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> I'm not going to go to that Tuesday night meeting anymore. They never call on me. It's just a big click. That's all it is. <laughs> what do you mean it's a big click? Well, they call on each other. They go out to their coffee. And they love each other. And they treat me like a piece of crap. You know why? No. Because you're a piece of crap. <laughs> on and on. He was kind to me in between, too, but I don't remember that. <laughs> but he made me do terrible things. And later I looked back, he was having me do the steps, but I didn't know it or I wouldn't have done them. <laughs> the day I lost my job as a dishwasher at six months, he made me uh, write my inventory. I just explained to him a week before. Well, you've taken your inventory with a professional psychoanalyst. You don't have to take it with some goddamn out-of-work actor in Pacific Palisades. <laughs> the day I lost my job as a dishwasher, I said, Bob, I've lost my job as a dishwasher. What am I going to do? He said, why don't you write your goddamn inventory the way I told you? I was so upset. Several times in my first year, if I would have had the money... I would have called the World Service Office in New York, area code 212-686-1100, and turned that old bastard in. I just, I just want you to know, there's an old timer in Los Angeles killing newcomers. And I'll give you his name and home phone number. Now things are all different. Many, many years later, when I call the World Service Office in New York, I say, No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. I've had it both ways. This side is better. But little by little, I've, uh, I did the steps, I guess, little by little. Little by little, it started to come together. It started to make sense. You know, that one of the great, the great truths you find in AA, we'd like to think they all come at once, but they don't. The hard thing to remember if you're new is that AA comes in disassociated pieces so often. You know, you get a piece of me, oh, there's some, put it on your, but it's like having a cross or jigsaw puzzle. You're like, you get another piece, oh, look, look what I learned. It Don't fit that some bitch, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you, uh... And you find another piece, that doesn't fit nothing, and you just, you start to get discouraged. You get a bunch of pieces, all of them seem important, but none of them have a value of any kind. And you finally one day get a piece, and, oh, this one fits, and this one fits. It's a horsey. <laughs> and then, gee, ha, 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 you know. But sometimes there's a long wait getting that piece that says horsey, I'll tell you. But I stayed sober, and finally held a job, and... I was about a year sober wrapping packages, not much of a job, but I held a job. I was a couple years over, I got a job as a writer, little writer. Still didn't have any front teeth. Had saved some money up. I was going to go work in a medical corporation in the advertising department. No front teeth. I said, money. I said, Bob, got some money together. Get some front teeth. He said, send that money to your kids in Dallas. I said, what? I've sent them everything I can, but Jesus, they got front teeth, Bob. I... 
they lived in a post office box. He'd have been. You just, you've been a hideous father. Send him the goddamn money. <laughs> but I learned to carry my lip like this. And for a year and a half, nobody knew I didn't have front teeth in that company. They thought I'd been burned in a fire. Then <laughs> I finally held a job and some more jobs and got radio and television and became successful. Ha ha ha. Great. When I was five, sober five years, the same family came out from Dallas to get into my wallet and live off me forever again and had another child and we live happily ever after. It was all a very nice story. As you can tell today, I'm, let me give you some hope, by the way. If you're kind of new, if you've lost teeth in your drinking, let me give you some hope. Once you became spiritually transported, they grow back. <laughs> Maybe you'll have your sponsor explain that to you. But, uh, so it's very nice, you know, speakers always wind up saying, now I'm happy and successful and wonderful. You try to find a newcomer to look at so you can give them that look. I've got it all together, and you haven't. <laughs> and probably never will have. <laughs> I want to say just one couple little things before I sit down. For the, per the reason I'm here is not to tell you that I became successful. So much, the most important thing I said tonight, I said a long time ago, and none of you paid any attention, nor should you. I wouldn't have. But I said, my name is Clancy Immisland, and I'm an alcoholic. That's the single most difficult thing I've ever had to come to believe in my life. I did not believe I was an alcoholic really when I drank. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic when I got sober. I didn't believe I was an alcoholic after I was sober. I'd, I can talk drinking stories, and I can talk jails and hospitals. But I'm not an alcoholic because of one thing. My problem really isn't alcohol. It is sometimes, and it looks like it, and it smells like it, and people think it is. And I want to just shout, if you think my problem is alcohol, why don't you come in my bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning some morning when I'm sober and watch me lying in bed, looking off in the darkness, sick and desperate and afraid and wondering what the hell's wrong with me and what's happened to my life and just can't think I'm going insane? Then you won't think my problem is alcohol. You'll know it's something else. And I've gotten sober a lot, and it makes me want to kill myself when it's too long. I wish my problem were alcohol. But how can you be an alcoholic if your problem isn't alcohol? That's a big question. I'm very glad that I stayed here, that I had a sponsor who insisted that I take the actions, who intimidated me into doing it, I'm glad that I stuck with people who were trying, accidentally in some cases, that I developed a revulsion for people, the fringers who stay on the side and tell you you don't have to do it. I'm glad that I stayed here long enough to discover the most important single thing I've ever discovered. That little jigsaw picture in my life was I finally discovered what the hell was wrong with me. I discovered something that, I'm going to say this slowly, it's going to sound so upside down, it's going to sound strange. But I discovered this in Alcoholics Anonymous. I discovered if my problem is alcohol, I am not an alcoholic. And conversely, if I'm an alcoholic, my problem is not alcohol. You say, how could that be? That's crazy. That's some kind of 
treatment center talk. That's nonsense. I, uh, but I've been around here a long time. I have, uh, I'm convinced that's the message of this book, of what we do here, of these meetings. I'm sure I'm the only one in this room, or one of the very few, who ever sat down with Bill Wilson for an hour and talked to him. He said that's what he felt too. But how can that be? Of course the problem is alcohol. I can disprove that in 10 seconds. If the problem is alcohol, detoxes turn out winners. And they don't. Hospitals turn out winners. They don't. Jails turn out winners. Toilets turn out winners. <laughs> you talk all you want about the hospitals and treatment facilities. The number one detox in the world is still the toilet. There's, I'm sure there's anyone in this room who hasn't knelt down in the morning and gazed into those shining waters and is <laughs> say your morning prayer. Oh, God. You hardly ever stop thinking. You're getting a free detox. <laughs> Look, Betty, this won't go on the insurance. <laughs> Some mornings when you're sick enough, and you get an unnatural reaction to alcohol, your body will reduce toxicity from both ends at once. <laughs> That's good on your body but it's terrible on your nerves because you're called upon to make a series of instant decisions and and every answer must be correct there's a film if you guess wrong just once you fellas but if getting sober is the answer you don't need any help well, if it isn't alcohol, what the hell is it? Is it something mysterious? Is it something spooky? Is it some metaphysical thing the old-timers have kept from us? <laughs> it's something you hear every day and, like me, misunderstand till I die from it. It's something that sounds like alcohol, but isn't. It's something called alcoholism. It's the same thing. Alcohol, alcoholism, same thing. Semantics, not the same thing. Your life depends upon learning it's not the same thing. There are many, many differences involved, but the, probably the most significant one that, for us. A couple years ago, I was asked to come down to Orlando, Florida and address a group of psychiatrists and doctors on the differences between alcohol problems and the disease of alcoholism. I felt almost sheepish when they called me because I felt I could tell them over the phone, you know. Could, could save a lot of money. But then I thought, if I do that, I'll never get to Disney World. <laughs> So I went down and dazzled them. But I can tell you in one sentence. The difference is this. An alcohol problem is overcome by stopping drinking. In this strange, denigrating, emotionally destructive, conflict-enhancing, insanity-causing, eventually fatal thing called alcoholism, you will discover sooner or later, if you haven't discovered it yet, that stopping drinking as such has no significant effect on your life other than to gradually make it so painful that you eventually can't stand it. The curse and fatal curse of alcoholism is that sobriety always becomes unbearable. You may have a little time, but it's going to make these 
decision I'm going to be changing my life and so on, but one night, here they come again, here come your pals. Despair and hopelessness and fear and feeling different and feeling people are screwing you around again and the feeling that nobody really cares for you anyway. And it's just on and on. And the time comes when you just, you're sober and it's just, I wish my problem was alcohol. I wish there's... And uh, now, oddly enough, even this doesn't make you an alcoholic. That's just the precondition. People who have those emotions like you and I do think we're the only ones. Let me tell you something. There are millions and millions of people who have all the emotions you and I do who are not alcoholics. They are people for whom the psychiatric couches are set up. People who live in reality but have all the emotional obsessions and neuroses. They're called acute or intense neurotics. They live in much pain and conflict a lot. They are the people for whom things like Valium were invented and Darvon and all the depressants to take intense, conflict-prone people and slow them down and hold them down. And they can drink every day of their life and they'll never become an alcoholic. So feeling that way doesn't make you an alcoholic. Some, one other factor must be present. Alcohol must have an unusual effect on your body that it doesn't have on about 94 or 5% of people who drink alcohol. What is this unusual effect? Keeps you drunk all the time? No human body can stay intoxicated two straight weeks in the laboratory. You can't handle alcohol? False. Alcoholics handle alcohol better than social drinkers under almost any conditions and tests. If you've ever been to a party with social drinkers and you all drank the same, I would imagine you'd drive them home. It's just... <laughs> But it's just hard to get them to drink the same. That's the problem. Because <laughs> they say things like, Oh, no more for me. I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> And you want to say, Why don't you feel this, wussy? <laughs> you know. I don't know if they have it here in Washington, but in California they have a new law now where they set up roadblocks at Christmas time to catch drunken drivers. Do you have that up here? They're not trying to catch people like you and me. They're trying to catch social drinkers who are out on their Christmas drunk who don't know how to drink. They're out there. They bump into trees and each other. While experienced, decent people like you and I have to sit beside, behind them and say, hurry up up there for Christ's sake. What is it? What is alcohol? What is it that alcohol does that it doesn't do to 94% of people? Turns out just the one thing I never, I always took for granted. Alcohol does what it does to you at all. That's just an after effect. The unnatural effect is alcohol has to be able to take untenable reality and make it comfortable. Alcohol has to change my perception of reality. It's hard to realize it doesn't do that for most people. That's why they don't drink. When I was about a year sober, the best explanation I ever got, I was working in a little advertising agency in the account where one of our accounts was Camp Chatka Vodka. And I was a package wrapper there. I wasn't involved in any creative work. 
but they had used the same billboard for 10 years. They did for years after that. It always said, vodka is pronounced Kamchatka. They changed the colors, the artwork was always that. And I was back there wrapping packages out front here. Look, I'm going to make my move. I'm going to give these people an idea that's going to set them on fire. And I say, who is that masked man without any front teeth there? <laughs> With the silver bullets. Yeah. So I came by one day and I said, they were laying out down the bar. I said, none of my business. And, uh, but just an idea for, how about this for a slogan? Kamchatka vodka goes boom. Better than all vodkas anywhere. And they looked up at me, the same look I've been getting all my life. It was just... One guy says, are, are you supposed to be up here? And the other guy says, you know, you've got a bad-looking mouth and a bad-sounding mouth. And somebody else said, you know, if you don't like the way we do things, why don't you wrap your goddamn packages somewhere else? And no one likes to be publicly humiliated. And they laughed at me. <laughs> Get out of here, you guy. If I would, I would have jumped the desk and killed him, except I didn't know how to explain to my sponsor. <laughs> just, <laughs> and I went away, I was just crazy. I just, <laughs> that day I saw my sponsor and I said, Bob! He said, hold it down for Christ's sake. If you can't be a man, try to act like one. <laughs> now what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> I gave him ten minutes on this story and what, how they'd screwed me around and I tried to explain to him. I gave him a slogan. I said, I don't care if they accepted it, Bob, but they humiliated me. They just laughed at me. They just acted as though my slogan was no good at all. They, I'll never be anything, Bob. He said, oh, shut up. When he got mad, he used to wave his finger under my nose. And this time I really missed my front teeth. You know, I just... <laughs> and I wasn't going to give him the pleasure of gumming it. <laughs> he says, listen, can't you understand? They're not against you. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. Can't you understand this? Kamchatka vodka doesn't go boom to them. To them it goes... That's why you're in this goddamn meeting, and they're not. <laughs> you, might, uh, you might think about this. Put this in your mind somewhere. You may sometimes think, as all of us have done, am I really an alcoholic? I haven't had a story like that one has. Am I really an alcoholic? Maybe I just was a situational drinker. Maybe I could have a little drink. And here's the test you give. If you are willing to look forward to a drink, so when your back's to the wall and the hounds of fate ripping at your throat, and you take a drink, oh God, and have it go, if that's what you're looking for, you can drink. But if you're like me, and your back's to the wall, and the hounds of fate ripping each other. Oh, God! And it doesn't go... But it goes... <laughs> Bring on your goddamn hound, Mrs. Baskerville. Well, if that's what you're looking for, you can't drink. You're screwed. Because every time it works for you, it ruins sobriety a little bit more. The curse of this illness is that's the people get drunk and die. But you drink till your body makes you get sober, and you stay sober till your mind makes you drink, and you drink till your body makes you stay sober, 
and you stay sober till your body makes you drink, and you can go on for years in agony and altering what is wrong with them. These guys I talked to about, the guys made $250,000 a year and the astronaut and pro football player and actors and so on. What do we all have in common? I'm their sponsor. What the hell we got in common? They haven't been in Skid Row. We've all lived in an untenable sobriety and no, now drinking is no longer tenable. That's a deadly aspect. Today it is estimated over 90% of alcoholics in America still die drunk. And do you know why they die drunk? With all the help available? They die convinced they are not really alcoholics because they say, but you don't understand. My problems were real. They came when I was sober. And they never know. So that's why it's important tonight to just take a minute to think what AA is. It's not a place to go and get sober. It's not a place to go and get off the booze. It's not a place to go and become wonderful, to become holy. None of these things. The function of Alcoholics Anonymous is to, over a long period of time, to do what alcohol did quickly. It's to almost instantly, what alcohol did almost instantly, it is designed to little by little alter my perception of reality. To little by little begin to fill holes that nothing has ever filled in my life. To little by little live in some degree of dignity in the world. One of the drawbacks, of course, is for people like me, how do you return to God? And thank God, my sponsor pointed out to me I didn't have to return to God. I think any ever says I had to return to God. If I didn't like God as a higher power, I could use Him. And He became my higher power. As a result of that, I came to believe in AA. And over a period of time, I found myself coming to pray to a God that I had finally discovered, to the best of my knowledge, meant was for my good, not for my punishment. And I haven't had a day for almost 30 years that I haven't prayed earnestly to a God that I think loves me. My sponsor made me make an amend to my father that I hated. I hadn't talked to him in years. He made me write a letter of amends. I said, that old son of a bitch, he ruined my life with his demands of perfection of me, and he deserted my mother and I, and I hate him. And uh, I wrote a letter of amends to this overpowering, tall, frightening figure. And a couple years later, we corresponded back and forth a little bit, and I visited him in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and opened the door, and that tall, towering figure was a small, kind of, weary man he said oh son I'm so glad you're home I've wept about you so many times and we wound up dearest to friends for 25 years and when he died two or three years ago I sat at his bedside and he smiled at me and pressed my hand and died and I felt so good that he died and a couple of days later sitting in the Norwegian Lutheran Church in Eau Claire Wisconsin said once upon a time I swore I'd never go in with my father's little casket seeing looking around I think isn't it amazing God is in the Norwegian Lutheran Church just like he's in my group in Los Angeles Somebody good for me if I can get out of the way. But I'm still a human being. And I still have emotions. I still am not, you know. That's why they say in AA, don't get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Not because they're bad things. They are perception distorters. They make things look different. When you're hungry, people get stupid. I don't know why. They... <laughs> What's wrong with you for Christ's sake? When you're angry, God wants you to kill them for their own good. This is for your own good. <laughs> when you're lonely, you just know that everybody's at a party somewhere, but nobody told you. <laughs> when you're tired, they attack you. I've used the example many times, but it's still true. 
I can get on that Santa Monica in the freeway in the morning. I've been sober 31 years. I'm an old timer. And I know enough not to act tired. I can hum. <laughs> but they know. They know I'm tired. They... Did you see a lady up there in Los Angeles? See the boy in the gray car? He's exhausted. I'm going to cut that son of a bitch off. But what AA has done for me has enabled me not to have to chase people past my exit. If I have to cut him by 4th Street, I say, Good flying, Red Baron. We'll meet again. <laughs> a few years ago, I came off Santa Monica Freeway. The little girl in a Toyota just about killed me. She almost put me in the overpass. I just... <gasps> the trouble is when you catch these people in AA, you can't do anything. But you get next to them go... <laughs> give them a ray. And I caught up with this little girl. God, it's just crazy. She almost killed me. She didn't even look back. I gave her a triple ray. I went... And I suddenly realized, here's your little girl, about 17. Looked just like my granddaughter, Katie. Blonde hair and rosy cheeks and downtown driving and rush hour. I think, what am I doing? What kind of a crapid am I? Did I attack some little honey like that? So I, I smiled at her. And she went. But <laughs> oh. so these are the things you got to face when you're sober. that's all part of living. No matter what therapy you take, you will never feel good all the time. Don't let people sell you a bill of goods that if you go to a therapy that says your parents caused this, you will feel better than human beings feel. There is nothing that will make you feel better than a human being. Human beings have ups and downs. And the time comes when you can't blame them anymore. The time comes in AA when then is then and now is now and God damn it, let's live in the world. I think... I, uh, as most of you know, I got to be kind of successful. When I was 15 years sober, I was a marketing director in Beverly Hills, and my kids were all growing up, and everything was fine. And one day I found myself leaving a job in Beverly Hills, and for the last 15, 16 years, I run the mission on Skid Row in Los Angeles that threw me out. It's not an alcoholic treatment center. It's not a, I went down there just for a couple of days looking for the guy that threw me out. I was going to get him. <laughs> I haven't found him yet, but as soon as I do. But it's a nice place odd wind-up for me because I'm not known for sacrificing myself much for anything. But I've had a... I live with the same wife, a lot of wonderful grandchildren, some in this town, some in other towns. I, uh, I've had a lot of great things happen to me. And I could say, what's the best thing that ever happened to me? What's the best thing that ever happened to me? My children, I love them, but they're not the best thing that ever happened to me. My, uh, my home, I love it, but it's not the best thing that ever happened to me. What is... The best thing that ever happened to me is that somehow in rooms like this with people like you taking actions as outlined in that book, I've come to understand my name is Clancy Immersland and I am an alcoholic. And through the power of this program and the grace of a loving God, I can walk with some degree in dignity, of dignity in the world that has baffled and destroyed me as long as I can remember. So if you're new tonight, 
or if you're afraid, or if they say in the church, weak and heavy laden. Everybody understands that. You could be sober 25 years and go through periods of being weak and heavy laden in 30 years. But what you have to remember is this. You're not so different. Your case isn't unusual. You're not surrounded by people who act, always feel the way they look. We all do the same. That's what makes it so successful here. And I think if I could wish you anything, we would wish you with some Christmas or New Year's or next July 16th to find yourself walking in a world that has been foreign and alien to you and walk with some degree of dignity and say, I belong here. And I owe it to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for which I shall be ever grateful. Thank you.